Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, how is Congress involved in foreign policy? My guest is Jordan Tama, a provost associate professor at American University's School of International Service. He's the author or editor of five books on foreign policy. They are Polarization and U.S. Foreign Policy, When Politics Crosses the Water's Edge, Bipartisanship and U.S. Foreign Policy, Cooperation in a Polarized Age, Rivals for Power, Presidential Congressional Relations, Terrorism and National Security Reform, How Commissions Can Drive Change During Crises, and A Creative Tension, The Foreign Policy Roles of the President and Congress. Jordan also has written many papers on foreign policy, so it seems to me that he is a great person to have on the podcast to help us understand how Congress is involved in foreign policy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Kevin. Some months ago, our listeners heard me chat with Alyssa Ardito about the formal powers of Congress in foreign affairs. We talked about things like how the Senate has the authority to approve treaties and to consider nominees to fill high positions in the State Department, the military, and other you know, agencies that are involved in foreign affairs. We also talked about the fact that Congress has the uh, power to declare war and the discretion to fund and create agencies that deal with matters overseas, things like the United States Agency for International Development. And we also pondered, you know, kind of in a philosophical manner of like how we're supposed to have a representative democracy influencing foreign affairs. So we covered those topics, but I wanted to bring you in because you're so well prepared and well studied and scholarly on the matter of kind of where the rubber hits the road and how the wheels actually turn. So let me start by asking... Where should the bewildered citizen first look when trying to understand how Congress is involved in foreign policy? Well, Congress is involved in foreign policy in a lot of ways, more than most Americans realize. And this includes both Congress exercising its formal powers and Congress exercising influence in more informal ways. So I'll say a, a kind of quick word about both of those areas, the formal and informal powers. Certainly the formal powers are really important. And the most important of these tends to be the power of the purse. When it comes to spending on diplomacy, defense, and defense is half of the discretionary federal budget. So that's, that's huge. Uh, foreign aid, the president simply can't act without Congress appropriating the funds. And so this gives Congress a power that it exercises every single year. And in recent years, Congress has sometimes challenged the president assertively on foreign policy spending. One example of that, when Donald Trump was president, he wanted to cut the budget of the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development by a third. And Congress said no and instead maintained the budget at roughly constant levels. And that was important in allowing 
the U.S. to continue playing an active role in the world and providing foreign assistance to other countries. Congress also routinely influences foreign policy by passing legislation that authorizes or mandates foreign policy stances or actions. For instance, Congress has mandated sanctions in recent years on many countries, including Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. This is an area where Congress tends to be quite active legislatively. Also, though, Congress influences foreign policy through its informal powers, and this can include public statements by members of Congress, particularly the more prominent members of Congress, like the chairs or ranking members of the key foreign policy committees or the House or Senate leaders. It also can include trips to foreign countries by members of Congress. It can include private meetings between members of Congress and senior executive branch officials. And I'll just kind of say a quick word about a couple of these informal Tool. So public statements by members of Congress um, on high-profile foreign policy issues can, can sometimes be pretty important because they can generate a lot of media attention and that can shape public attitudes. So one example of this recently is MAGA Republicans in Congress, along with uh, Donald Trump and some of the MAGA Republicans running for president, have been making public statements in opposition to U.S. aid to Ukraine. And this seems to be moving Republican public opinion you know, more away from supporting U.S. aid to Ukraine, even though legislatively the MAGA Republicans don't have the majority on that issue in Congress yet. Foreign trips can be important. A lot of members of Congress have gone to Taiwan in recent years, and this can send a strong signal to Taiwan, can infuriate China, complicate things the Biden administration is trying to do with regard to China. And then there's, you know, private conversations going on all the time between members of Congress and, and executive branch officials. Sometimes these can, you know, be important, but they're not going to be reported in the media. But that that sort of thing is happening all the time. Yeah, if I can just follow up, one of the things you mentioned is that both individual members of Congress and the committees who have formal jurisdiction have a role to play. And that's that's interesting because that means you have a president and his foreign policy, the foreign policy apparatus, but you have 535 other people who can be getting involved in these things in one way or another, which, like you said, doesn't create a necessarily a clear message all the time for foreign nations to to pick up on. They instead may be picking up on a bit of a cacophony. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And on a lot of foreign policy issues, there is no kind of consensus position coming out of Congress. There's just a, a lot of different positions. And when that's the case, often Congress is not going to be able to pass legislation on the issue. And so all you kind of get from Congress is a lot of different messages. But sometimes those messages can still be quite important. And there are issues where there is a prevailing position in Congress. So I'll again go back to something during the Trump administration. Trump was very critical of NATO. And privately, he talked about the idea of withdrawing from NATO. Well, members of Congress who supported NATO heard that and they passed a resolution reiterating U.S. support for NATO. Even though there are some members of Congress who are on Trump's wavelength on, on NATO, the majority you know, was, was not with him. So yeah, it's a mix. There are some issues where it's completely a cacophony and Congress is not going to be able to act legislatively at all. And there are others where it's still possible to, to muster a majority. But when there's a cacophony, it really does weaken the kind of U.S. position in the world because it, it makes it harder for the U.S. to speak with one voice. 
it makes it harder for other countries to trust U.S. commitments because when they hear a lot of different things coming out of Congress, the president may be saying to them, you know, we're ready to negotiate some long-term partnership with you. We're ready to, you know, offer you, you know, a long-term aid package. But then if foreign governments hear members of Congress criticizing that idea or saying something entirely different, they're going to, you know, question whether they really should enter into this partnership with the U.S., whether they can really trust the U.S., because who knows who's going to be president in a few years or what Congress is going to be, you know, doing in a few years. So that is a real problem for the kind of credibility, reliability, reputation of the U.S. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly it complicates it. And since the United States is not a parliamentary system, but is instead something different, the separation of power system, it's probably even more difficult for foreign audiences to kind of read what's going on. When when is a legislator simply popping off and it's not something to be worth paying attention to versus, oh, no, this guy, you know, chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee or he has some sort of heft that makes this uh, really relevant. Now, is it possible as a generalization to characterize Congress as either leading on foreign policy issues or following and reacting to the president? Or is it just issue to issue? It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly the standard view of Congress is that it follows the president on foreign policy. I think the reality is more nuanced than that. Congress does often follow the president, but it, there are many cases where it's it's leading on foreign policy. The cases where it's leading, though, tend to be issues that are a little less salient. But certainly, president leads overall on foreign policy. The president is usually the first mover on foreign policy. And the, pres the president has certain institutional advantages that enable them to you know, be the first mover often. Compared to Congress, the president has access to more extensive and up-to-date information about what's going on around the world. The president is getting you know, regular reports from the intelligence community, from uh, US diplomats that are you know, more up-to-date than information that, that's coming into Congress on a day-to-day -day basis. And the president um, can act more quickly than Congress usually. Uh, you know, even when some members of Congress want to do something, they're, you know, they may not be able to persuade their colleagues to go along, may not be able to, you know, get legislation approved. When, certainly when it comes to the use of military force, the president is usually in the driver's seat. It, typically when use of the military is on the table, the president is the initiator. And then Congress is left to either, you know, endorse the use of military force, criticize it, or simply do nothing. And often Congress is unable to reach consensus and, and so just doesn't take any kind of action as a, as a unified body. And as a result, even though the Constitution gives power to declare war to Congress, there have been lots of military deployments in recent decades by presidents that were not authorized by, by Congress. And Congress has, has you know more or less sat on the sidelines in terms of that decision. But there are plenty of other issues where Congress does lead on, on foreign policy. And often this is in the form of members of Congress pressing for the U.S. to pay more attention to a certain foreign policy issue, sort of do more on a foreign policy issue that some members of Congress feel is being neglected. I'll give an example from my own experience on this. About a decade ago, I served as a fellow on the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission in the, in the House. This is the body with the charge of elevating attention to human rights in Congress. And in that role, I was supporting the work of Congressman Jim McGovern, who um, is the Democratic co-chairman of that commission. And I assisted him as he and some like-minded members of Congress spearheaded the enactment of a law called the Magnitsky Act, which placed sanctions on Russian government officials who had committed 
major violations of human rights. And this legislation was entirely an initiative of, of members of Congress. It was, it was resisted by the Obama administration because the administration thought it would antagonize Russia and hurt U.S. relations with Russia. But Congressman McGovern and his allies on the Hill kind of pushed it through, and Obama signed it reluctantly because it had so much support in Congress. So this, this type of thing happens regularly, too. There is congressional entrepreneurship on foreign policy on certain issues that are priorities for particular members of Congress. There are members of Congress who really care about certain issues, and they push you know, for more attention on those issues. Yeah, yeah, that's a your example is a good one, and actually spurred me to remember that in you know more recent years we've seen Congress really lean in on the issue of the cruelties towards the Uyghurs in China, for example, uh, and on a, a whole variety of trade-related issues. Um, and as you referenced, you know, the idea of you know, sanctions being a frequent tool that Congress leans in on, where it felt to me that they were way ahead of where the president was. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. On, the Uyghurs is an excellent example of that. Congress passed legislation imposing sanctions on China for human rights abuses against the Uyghurs. And this was not something the president would have wanted to do. This occurred under Trump. And Congress has passed similar bills targeting Chinese human rights abuses in Hong Kong. Again, bills that presidents have uh, not been enthusiastic about, because even though our recent U.S. presidents have had tough stances toward China, they want more flexibility, right? They, they don't want Congress to mandate these laws that bind, that bind their hands, because then, you know, the president has, doesn't have the flexibility of being able to negotiate and sort of, you know, wield the levers of, you know, carrots and sticks with regard to a foreign government. So um, often, you know, Congress in these cases is, is kind of, you know, restricting the president's flexibility. And that's a, a common source of, you know, tension between, between Congress and the president. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 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 And it gets at that difficult matter of, you know, kind of democratic accountability. It's understandable a president would want to have an absolute free hand to be able to cut a deal and president's going to be negotiating with a country on, you know, multiple topics and things are linked and decoupled. And, you know, that's the way negotiations work. Very messy. So anything that comes in and kind of curbs that authority, they, they might might well bristle at. But at the same time, Foreign policy is ultimately American policy, and there's got to be some sort of democratic accountability, and that's what the legislature is for. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And this is a question I ask my students often, you know, are we better off with a more active Congress or with a dominant president? And this is really the trade-off, I think. You know, a more active Congress makes foreign policy more accountable to the American people, more representative of the, you know, wide range of views of the American people. On the other hand, you know, the president is often more attuned to the overall national interest. And so, you know, what's in the overall best interest of the United States. And sometimes there's a you know tension between what might be in the overall best interest of the United States and what might, you know, sort of best represent the views and perspectives and interests of particular, you know, parts of the American population that are represented most effectively in, in Congress. So this is a real kind of tension and trade-off. I don't think there's a, a kind of right answer or, you know, one is necessarily better or more important than the other, but I think that's kind of at the heart of our our system and it uh, really kind of comes through, I think, in, in foreign policy in particular. Yeah, yeah, certainly that trade-off between what's good for the nation as a whole versus, you know, localities. I mean, we, we saw that issue kind of, uh, I don't know, relitigated 
uh, or debated again when you know we had this effort to uh, renegotiate NAFTA. The argument being like, well, right. whatever great things it did for the nation as a whole in the aggregate, the costs on particular populations, textile workers, et cetera, were, were too high, and therefore we got to go back and change the agreement to get the trade-off to, to work a little bit better. Right. Yeah, that's right. So you know, as a kid, I remember hearing the phrase, politics stops at the water's edge. And I, I don't remember if the context was in discussing the United States at war or if it was just kind of a more general uh, phrase that was used to, dis to justify the president having a, f a free hand in foreign policy. You use those words in the title of one of your books, as listeners heard. Do legislators tend to curb their divisions to present a united front to the world? Or is this more an ought statement, an executive wish that politics would stop at the water's edge, but they just don't? It's more the latter. It's an ought statement. So the notion that politics stops at the water's edge has been expressed often in discussions of foreign policy since the early Cold War days. It was really in the early Cold War when that phrase became commonly used. It was in the context of proponents of policies of containment toward the Soviet Union were looking for bipartisan support for that. And they argued that members of Congress in both parties should rally around the president so that the U.S. could speak with one voice in the competition with the Soviet Union. The reality is that politics has never stopped at the water's edge. That certainly remains true today. But even during the heart of the Cold War, politics didn't stop at the water's age. There were you know, many examples of foreign policy issues during the Cold War that became highly politicized and where members of Congress were attacking the president, you know, in part for partisan reasons. In 1949, Harry Truman was slammed very aggressively by Republicans in Congress after China became communist. The communist revolution in 1949 was successful. Republicans in Congress blamed Truman for losing China to the communists and went after him really aggressively in the 1950 congressional election. So this is not new, the notion that you know partisanship comes into play on foreign policy. And in general, members of Congress in the opposition party support the president on foreign policy when it's in their political interest to do so. And they criticize the president on foreign policy when they can score political points through that type of criticism. So if a presidential foreign policy position or action is broadly popular, typically members of Congress in the opposition party will support it or just simply stay silent on it. But if voters or key constituents are lukewarm or concerned about a presidential foreign policy stance or initiative, then members of the opposition party will typically kind of go after the president. They won't hold back from hold hold themselves back from criticizing it. And you know this this type of criticism is healthy to an extent. And you know in a democracy we should have back and forth. We don't want to have an imperial president who is not challenged by members of Congress. But when kind of the norm becomes partisan attacks on the president by the opposition party that we really weakens the kind of effectiveness of U.S. foreign policy, as we were talking about before, it makes it harder for the U.S. to speak with one voice. It weakens the position of the president overseas when, you know, the, the uh, half of Congress is, you know, regularly uh, criticizing, you know, what the president is doing. Right, right, right. Yes, as you were, were counting the, you know, the divisions during the Cold War over over policy, my mind was kind of bouncing both forward and backward in time. I mean, there was the 
more recent when you had, you know, the United States was in you know, Somalia and there was, you know, the Black Hawk down and Marines died. There are incidents like that. But you go back to the earliest days of the United States and you had Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton doing battle over who our true friend was. Was it France or Great Britain? And they fought, they fought hard over that matter. So I think that's a, that, that makes clear to me that politics stopping at the water's edge is utterly aspirational. Yes, that, I think that Hamilton-Jefferson example is a great one, right? I mean, that was a very intense debate between, you know, what was the beginning of America's first two political parties. Yeah, so getting into this, this, this debates and partisan intensity, I can't let you go from the podcast until I ask you this question about polarization in foreign policy, since you've got a book on that. Uh, certainly, the House of Representatives has become intensely partisan on a variety of high salience issues. So, you know, some of them relating to foreign affairs, like immigration being a glaring example. Does this combat occur as frequently on foreign policy, this kind of gratuitous attack dog politics? Does this happen on foreign policy issues you know, as much as it does on domestic stuff, or is policymaking in the foreign affairs area generally more consensual? Yeah, well, po polarization has been increasing on foreign policy over the past few decades. Immigration policy is a, is a great example of that. Um, so the trend line in terms of polarization is going up, just like polarization has been going up in domestic policy. But the level of polarization on foreign policy remains below the level of polarization on domestic policy. So in other words, the polarization trend line is going up in both policy areas, but the line is higher on domestic policy than on foreign policy. Uh, so overall bipartisanship does remain more common on international issues. And I'll just give you know a couple examples of this. So one example today is US policy toward China. There's a lot of bipartisanship when it comes to US policy toward China. Generally, most Democrats and Republicans today favor tough stances to counter the rise of China, strengthen the US position with respect to China, both economically and in a security sense. There's some debate you know, about that, but there's a broad consensus on that overall trajectory. The kind of nuance I would add, though, is there are a lot of foreign policy issues where bipartisanship coexists with intra-party division. And this is evident on U.S. policy toward Ukraine right now. So there are internationalist Republicans who are aligned with the Biden administration and most Democrats on Ukraine in favoring heavy U.S. aid to Ukraine and you know various steps to kind of counter Russia. I'm thinking of people like Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Michael McCall, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence in the presidential race. These these internationalist Republicans on when it comes to Ukraine are kind of are on the same page as Joe Biden, more or less. In fact, they think we should be giving even more aid to, more military aid to Ukraine than Biden is. But then you've got within the Republican Party, the MAGA Republicans you know Trump, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy, and the and the in the presidential campaign, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates in in the House, who think we shouldn't be giving any aid to Ukraine. That Ukraine is not a priority of the U.S. Why should we, you know, be caring about this conflict? And so there's a real debate within the Republican Party at the same time as there's bipartisan cooperation between one wing of the Republican Party and the Biden administration, and that that is 
more typical on foreign policy than on domestic policy, this kind of intra-party division. Right. And is it also also the case that, you know, domestic affairs, I think, generally tend to be a bit more salient to Americans. Foreign affairs are a little less clear. There's a whole number of reasons why that seems to be the case. And as such, foreign affairs, then there are lots and lots of issues that have almost no visibility domestically, or they're so in the weeds, like, are we going to re-up a treaty with Southeast Asian, you know, regarding protection of the oceans or use of the waterways or, or what have you? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that what that means when it comes to, you know, partisanship and polarization is on those less salient issues, members of Congress have more leeway to take different stances. There's not kind of a party orthodoxy that everyone has to follow. So take an issue like abortion, you know, you can't be a, a successful Republican politician and be pro-choice. But when it comes to, say, you know, aspects of U.S. foreign aid policy, most voters aren't paying attention to that. You know, the, the key kind of advocacy groups in the party, it's not, it's not a focus of theirs. So you're a Repu- if you're a Republican, you could take different kinds of positions and still, you know, be a successful politician. So it gives more leeway to kind of move away from party orthodoxy when, when an issue is not as salient politically, and that enables more bipartisanship. All righty. Well, we've reached our time. Professor Jordan Tama, thank you for being on the program and for helping us better understand how Congress is involved in foreign policy. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.